Yo, welcome back everybody to Rodian Radio episode 27. But before uh, we get into my interview with this legend here, um, got a few announcements I got to make. Uh, once again, I'm pushing the Rodian Mixtape Documixery available at documixery.com. I will put this up against any West Coast Documixery at the moment uh, uh, based on Steve Yano, the Japanese vendor from the city of Whittier at the Rodium Swamp Meet. Once again, we are, we are on all major platforms. As a matter of fact, if you don't find us on one of them, please let us know. But as of right now, we, we are on all major podcast platforms. So uh, somebody's been hitting me up and asking me, am I going to offer the CDs again? Yes. Yes. Once again, if you hit us on the Super Chat for 25 bucks, uh, I will send you all four of these Rhodium Classic Mixtapes. I will have eventually more uh, different ones. I, I mean, different ones. But right now you'll get 88 Booming Bass, 24-7, 86 on the mix, and high C. So for 25 bucks... Uh, those of you that have been asking, it is available now throughout the show. Other than that, um, uh, there was another thing that I was gonna I was gonna mention. Oh yeah, for for those of you that have still been in, inboxing me, commenting on YouTube or uh, DMing me on Instagram, uh, some of you tell me I'm not that computer savvy. How do I subscribe to your YouTube? Uh, once again, all you gotta do is just press the word subscribe. On YouTube that's it it's that simple if it's on your phone you hit it with your finger if it's on your laptop use your mouse hit the word subscribe and then hit the notification bell button so you can get future content or uh, uh, when we go live you will be notified first but other than that uh, without further ado let me go ahead and talk a little bit about my next guest he is from the world-class wrecking crew those of you that have uh know uh, or may not know today you will know this man's history i'm excited to get into it he has a new book he is behind the universal hip-hop museum uh oh, he's got other projects that he's working on but we'll let him talk about it so once again uh, clientele from the world class wrecking crew. Thank you very much, brother. Thank, Thank you, brother. You for coming, Thank you man. for having me, man. I appreciate yes. it. Uh, uh, I, first of all, I, I want to say that I appreciate uh, you being here. Uh, I've been knowing you for many, many years. But before we get, actually get into the interview, I wanted to ask you uh, did you attend the NAM this year? You know, I didn't get a chance to uh, go to NAM this year, man. Uh -huh. I do usually try to get there and attend it because uh, it's, it's always, you know, first of all, the most important thing to me about NAM is I see a lot of people that, you know, I know from back in the day, you yes. know, the Joe Cooleys and the Battle Cats and, you know, the DJ Speeds, all those guys always show up. So I miss them this year. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, I was just so busy on so many 
many different projects and, you know, got my hands, feet and toes in so many different things right now. It's just uh, it was difficult for me to get there. Yeah. Now, now whenever you attend the NAM, do you ever go like the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or do you like pick, pick one specific day to go to? I usually go every day. Really? Yeah. Because, you know, it's so much there. You don't get a chance to see it all in one day. So right. I try to, you know, pick a section, kind of hang there, then go to another section, then go to another section each day. But yeah, I try to do every day. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I went one day this year, which was a Saturday. Fuck, I got so beat, man. Because you do so much walking. Yeah, yeah, and there do. ain't really too much places to sit down. Yeah, no. But, uh, let me share with the public when I first met you. Okay. And then we'll get into it. Yeah. Uh, it was, I want to say early 80s, if not mid 80s. I want to say maybe 84, 85. Uh, my brother was uh, either security at the time or DJing at a club in Long Beach called Grand Central Station. Oh, yeah. Oh, wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, On man. the east side of Long Beach. Yeah. And uh, Joe Cooley was already DJing there. But I remember he told my brother, I'm going to bring my MC. I'm yeah. going to bring my MC. Now, this is before Rodney O. Yeah. You know, and uh, you there you were. You showed up. And I'll be honest with you. I was starstruck because to me... <laughs> You were the world class wrecking crew, right, you know, right, yeah. and I was like, "What the hell was he doing here?" Yeah. And then uh, uh, you got on the mic, you started interacting with the crowd, and yep. and let me tell you this: I told my boy today, clientele to me is the first and the most realest MC I've ever seen in person because the guy really knows how to address and engage with the crowd right. like a professional man. Yeah. And that right there, as a youngster, as an early teenager, impressed the hell out of me. Thanks, man. I appreciate you know? that. But now, uh, uh, let's get into it. Where was clientele raised at? Like, what, what city were you raised in? Well, you know, I grew up, I was born in East L.A. Okay. Um, and the first half of, I guess, say, until I was about maybe uh, 10, 11, uh, then I grew up in L.A., and then from there, we moved to Compton and I lived uh, and grew up in Compton. So I would say, uh, you know, L.A. County raised me, man. Wow, wow. Now, when you said East L.A., to yeah. me, that's like, that's like, wow. Yeah. Because mostly everybody that I interviewed has been in the business, they'll either say Compton or L.A., but I guess you moved around. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Pueblo, it's like Pueblo Projects, man. You know the whole bit. Yeah. Pueblo Projects. Wow. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, what elementary schools did you attend? Uh, well, out Shoot. in East L.A.? Uh, Holmes Avenue, um, which was right, you know, next to the Pueblo Projects. Went there. And then from there, uh, went to Western Avenue School in L.A., then uh, 109th Street School, 75th Street School, uh, and then eventually uh, ended up uh, in Compton at Vanguard, you know, junior high school. Then uh, I dipped over to, to Gardena High School right? Uh, because I didn't want to go to Centennial. I live five minutes away from Centennial, but, uh, man, you know, the gang situation was getting real crazy at yeah. that time. So moms was like, well, what you want to do? I was like, well... I get up 4.30 in the morning and catch four buses all the way over to Gardena High School and just make it over there. And that's what I did. Four until buses? I, until I was, yeah, until I was able to buy a car. You know, I raised up a little bit of money, bought me a little hoopty. And, uh, you know, maybe my, like, I would say my uh, junior year. Right. And so I was able to, you know, ride my little hoopty. But uh, before then, yeah, man, I'd get up 4.30 in the morning, man, roll out of bed, jump on them buses, man, and ride through, you know, like four different hoods. Just to get the Gardena. That's dope. You said hoopty. Damn, I haven't heard that in a minute. <laughs> but, and for, for the younger crowd that's watching this, a hoopty is either a bucket or a car. Yeah, it was a bucket. It, it was, was bucket. definitely a bucket. Yeah. Yo, that's dope. That's dope. And now, did you play any sports growing up? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I played, uh, you know, football, baseball, basketball, uh, all that good stuff. Were you man. ever any good at any of them? 
I was pretty good. You know, yeah. I pretty I made the All Star team a few times. Yeah, okay. yeah. Me and my cousin, you know, um, uh, Richard. Shout out to Rich, man, Richard Davis. Um, we'd always play together, and so the coaches would always put us together. So if we were playing baseball, I'd be, you know, shortstop, he's second base. If we played football, you know, I'd be, you know, maybe like the uh, cornerback and he'd be the defensive end or the linebacker on that side. Uh, played basketball, you know, he's he's the small forward, I'm the guard. So, yeah, they'd always put us together, man. That's dope. That's dope. You know, I had Arabian Prince here, and he said he played running back, if I'm correct. Uh, he played football. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and I remember Lonzo, he, he was telling me, you know, the high schools that he went to. Because I know in Compton, I mean, let's just be honest. If you were a blood, you went to Centennial. Yeah. If you were a crib, you went to Compton, Compton. Yep. and you chose to go to uh, uh, Gardena. Because I wasn't either one. <laughs> so, yeah, I went to Gardena. Plain and simple. You, you know, it's funny because uh, at that time, we lived in Compton <laughs> up of 152nd, then we moved to 155. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I was just a youngster, but my older brothers went to uh, Pioneer Enterprise. Yeah. But my, one of my oldest brothers, because I have four older and one younger, one of my older brothers didn't want to attend none of the high schools in uh, Compton. Right. So he used to ride his 10 speed. For uh, for those that may not know what a 10 speed is, bicycle that had 10 speeds. Yeah, 10 speed. Yeah. yeah. And he used to ride his 10 speed to Carson High. Mm-hmm. You know, so from Compton, Carson. And then from there, he from Carson, he used to uh, uh, ride his bike to Zodis because that's where he used to work. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so. No, that reminds me of me because <clears throat> I would go from. Gardena, and then after school, I went to work over at the Del Taco over there in Lawndale. So I oh. know all about that. Sometimes I'd come home first, then get my uniform on, <laughs> and then get back on the bus and ride back over to Lawndale. But yeah, that's wow. it's well, similar well, stories. What year did you graduate, uh, um, Gardena? 83. 83, yeah. wow. I was supposed to graduate <laughs> in 86, but never made it that far, bro. Uh, never made it that far. Right. I was too much into, believe it or not, ditching, DJing, and women. So, <laughs> me too, but I still yeah. graduated. <laughs> you know, now, now let me ask you this. Growing up in your home, yeah. uh, what type of music would you say you were raised with? Man, I mean, on the Temptations, the Jackson 5, you know, the Shy Lights, um, OJs, Isaac Hayes, uh, the Dells. <laughs> shoot, man. I mean, you name it, all of that good stuff from the 60s and the 70s, you know, Parliament Funkadelic. George Clinton, uh, Bootsy Collins, James Brown, um, just stuff like that, man. Right, it was blaring right. all the time, you know, out of the speakers in the house. And um, my uh, my stepfather, he would listen to The Last Poets okay, all the time. And, uh, you know, you hear that blaring a lot from, you know, that really, you know, hardcore revolutionary you know, right. 60s type stuff, uh, the Watts Prophets. Yeah. So I was I grew up on a lot of that kind of stuff, a, a really healthy dose. You, you know, know, you know let me ask you this. You being a rapper, okay, uh, MC rapper, I like to refer to you as an MC. Uh, um, when you hear the Watts Prophets, because you mentioned them, somebody brought this up to my attention and asked, and asked me, would you consider them the first rappers out here? Well, they consider themselves that. Okay. Um, because, you know, in talking to Brother Amd and having conversations with him and, and really uh, learning <clears throat> like his his whole story. Um, in fact, on their first album, I believe they used the word rap. They used the term rap. Oh, wow. You know? um, so they they considered themselves as as rappers. And I, man, you know, they're royalty out here. So I can't argue with that. Right. Right. You know, I saw an interview years ago with Isaac Hayes and they asked him what he thought about rap. Yeah. And uh, of course, he said, well, back in the days, man, rap was just 
talking. Right. Right, right, right. <laughs> I'm gonna go rap to this cat over yeah. here, you know. And and I thought that was kind of hilarious. But um, now, uh, growing up, you play any instruments? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I used to. I mean, I played the drums. In fact, um, when I was younger uh, in the Pueblo Projects, um, every weekend these cats used to gather around in daishikis and you know all that kind of stuff, and they would jam. There was a parking lot. Uh, it's like a like a dirt dirt parking lot by this bodega. And they'd get out there, bring their bongos and bring their timbales and all this kind of stuff. And they'd just be out there jamming their Afro-Latin music. And, you know, as a kid, I was fascinated by that. So right. I was drawn to it. And, you know, they'd always see me hanging around, standing around, looking, bobbing my head. And one of them one time, hey, come on over here, young blood. Yeah, get on this, you know, get on these congas right here. Yeah, play that right there. No, you got to cup your hands. So I started, you know, just playing, you know, the rhythms and stuff like right. that and getting into the congas and bells and all of that. And then eventually um, I picked up... Uh, uh, you know, like a like a clarinet one day, you know, wow. my cousin had a clarinet in the house. I said, what you doing with that? I ain't doing nothing with it. You know, I just picked it up, man, and taught myself how to play it. Um, my uh, one of my aunts, you know, she taught me how to play the piano. We'd go over there, you know, after church and stuff like that. Right. She'd, Boy, come on over and sit down and play that song, you know, and she'd make me play the songs and stuff. So, um, yeah, um, that's, you know, that's how I learned really how to, you know, get into the music and, wow. and, and play instruments. Now, 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 let me ask you, because, you know, to me, uh, to me, you're a pioneer and you were there when hip hop began. You know, a lot of that stuff trickled over from the East Coast. Yeah. Okay. Uh, who would you say possibly was the first rap song rapper uh, that you heard that, you know, that caught your ear and you said, you know, what is that? Well, you know, um, I tell you the story. We were um, on the school grounds. We were actually on the soccer field. And okay. we were playing soccer outside one day. And, you know, L.A., you know, we were, we were always into the, the cars that got the boom in the, in, in the trunks and in the systems and the big speakers. And we were out there playing, you know, we kicking the ball around, running around. And all of a sudden we heard this boom, 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 boom. And we just froze, everybody. We was like, what is that? Where is that coming from? The car. So the car bust the right turn. And then it went on down the street. And we just like, we just froze, man. Just like, you know, hypnotized. I was like, what is that sound? Where is that coming from? Yeah. And so we start talking about it. And then we learned, you know, through the friends. Oh, man, that's Rapper's Delight. That's that song by the Sugar Hill Gang. Then we started hearing it on the radio. I'm like, no, I got to go buy that song. So yeah. I went and bought it and uh, played it, man. I was hooked on hip hop ever since then. I wanted to be an MC so bad after that, man. From that point on. Yeah, that was it. I was done. I'm, I'm in. Uh, about how old do you think you were when you heard this? About 13, 14, something like that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I formed my own uh, rap group after that. Called the, it's some corny corny name called the Three Rapporteurs or something like that. It was okay. me, my cousin Rich, and um, my best friend Midnight, may he rest. But, um, yeah, we had a group. But the cool part about it was Midnight was he went to Catholic school. You know, his mother had him in these formal, like, dance classes. So he took ballet and tap and all this kind of stuff. And so he was our secret weapon. So we'd get out there and, you know, we'd rap and, you know, do our little, you know, routines and stuff like that, you know, to kind of double trouble trading off back and forth, the harmony raps. And then all of a sudden towards the end, Rich might do a little, you know, something with his mouth, beatboxing, and then midnight would just break out and start tap dancing. I mean, when I say tap, I mean, I'm talking Savion Glover, you know, uh, level, you know, kind of wow. tap, man. And he was so good at it. So the crowd just went crazy. He was always our secret weapon. So... Winning contest was no problem for us, hands down, because so, we always brought something different. So he would tap dance. Yeah, I was the mastermind. 
Rich was sort of like the muscle, and you know, Midnight was our secret weapon. He was a tap dancer in the group. Wow! And and, and at that time, uh, uh, were you writing your own lyrics? Oh yeah. Or, or everybody was everybody writing their own lyrics. Uh, type of deal? I, was, I was mostly writing theirs too. You know, that was that was my forte. And what really made us keep going, or me anyway, keep going, is we were at a contest one day, and uh, we performed. And this cat came up to us. Um, and he said, hey, you know, you guys are really good. You got something there. You got to you got to keep on going. You know, here's my number. You know, take it down. You ever need any advice? You ever want to talk about this? You want to take it to the next level? Just give me a call. That was Disco Daddy. Disco Daddy. Yeah. And and and, uh, you know, I would call him, get advice from him and everything. And to this day, you know, we still we still cool. Wow. Yeah. Disco Daddy. Yeah. Wow. I remember because my brother Mario brought that record home, and I, I know it was on a silver label. Yeah. And I think he was rapping to a Rick James song, if I'm correct. Yeah, that's right. Everybody, it was the Gigolo rap. Everybody, yeah. The Gigolo rap. Yeah. Oh, my God. Him and uh, Captain Rap. Yeah. Wow. You just brought back so many damn memories right there, bro. Because I, you know, again, Mexican kid, growing up in Wilmington, my brother brings home these records. And I'm hooked. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm hooked on it. Like, you can't, you know, you can't get enough of that type of well, music. Well, see, at that time, too, you know, disco was who we had known as the only, like, guy that had a record out. And to us, somebody like that coming up to us, he was a celebrity saying, yes. you know, you guys are talented. Keep going. We're like, okay, we must have, we must be on to something here. And that, that inspired me, man, to just, you know, right. put the foot on the gas and keep pushing. So, so those of you that have heard that uh, YouTube Jiggle Rap, Disco Daddy, yeah. you, you'll be blessed. So, uh, did, did writing lyrics come easy to you? Well, I used to write anyway. Okay, like I would write uh, um, poems, poetry. Um, Try my hand at writing like little screenplays, and I would drive my you know parents crazy or my uh, siblings crazy because I would write like little skits out here come on over here let's do this let's perform this little skit yeah that's your part that's your part that's your part and you know so I was always you know into into writing I just loved writing you know anyway because believe it or not <clears throat> when I was younger I was pretty uh, introverted you uh -huh. know as a kid um, but so that was the way that I could express you know myself and just kind of like get my thoughts out there to people wow Wow, that's that's amazing. First of all, I want to say uh, I'm having a good ass time talking to you sure. because I really, really love talking about the beginning yeah. of how it all started for us here, especially in the West Coast, and you being a huge part of it. You know, um, I remember a while back. Quick story: there was a couple of guys from Carson. Uh, they were going to Bannon High School, and I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And these guys were Knights of the Turntables. Yeah. Okay. And I remember I saw them with the white jackets, <clears throat> and they had Knights of the Turntables in their back. Yep. There was one guy named Gerard, and I walked up to him, and I didn't know, but I knew they had a record out, yeah. a, a vinyl record right. out. And to me, they were celebrities to me, yeah. you know, because I was DJing, and I loved music, you know. So I went up to him, and I just said, hey, man, um... Can I ask you guys a question? And I was real nervous, you know? Yeah. And they were like, yeah. And I said, how did you guys make it so big? <laughs> I didn't know that they yeah. weren't making any kind of money. Right, but to right, me, right. you got your jackets. You got a record out. Yeah. To me, you're big. And I wasn't talking about this. Right. You know, and shout out to them too, man, because you know, I used to give them a hard time back in the day. They, yeah. I don't know if they tell you that, but I used to call them the Knights of the Round Table Pizza because that back then, you know, we had this, you know, pizza place called Round Table Pizza, and they'd be like, Oh, come on, clientele, man, stop doing that. But I had mad love and respect for them because right. they were very talented, and you know, they were, you know, 
from our area and they were like you said they were organized they were doing something right. with it and i respected that you know but yeah i used to i used to rib on them all the time right you know, right they, you know they didn't see me coming and it's funny because when he he almost looked startled that i would think that they were big he, and all he said was like well um do you dj and i said yeah you know i dj and he was like okay um uh you ever heard of radiotron and i was like yeah yeah and he goes go to radiotron I didn't know what to expect when right, I right, right, yeah, yeah. but I remember walking in and then I heard uh, the song, the show by Dougie Fresh mm -hmm. and Slick Rick. Mm -hmm. And then I looked up and I saw a Latino guy up there DJing. That was Tony G, Tony ah, Gonzalez. Yeah, that's my boy. That man, was the yeah. first time I heard. And I had got the freaking goosebumps because wow. that was the first time I was ever like in that type of an environment, you know. Wow. It's so electric. And, and you know, it's funny because being alive at that time and being in hip-hop at that time it was so organic and it was a movement and we could we you didn't really have to even talk about it a lot you just felt it you know yes and, and you know when you would go to different places because i made it a point to try and sneak in all kinds of different places i love to battle rap i love to get into ciphers and i love to just like you know bounce off other people vibe off other people and hear other people and what they were into so i'd sneak in the radio trying i'd sneak in the grand central station i'd sneak in marshall's ballroom or just go there and just not let anybody even know who i was just be mr incognito and just kick back and listen and you know see the look but you don't it's it's not the same kind of thing nowadays back then it was so fresh and so new so new and even though you know we had our east coast influences we were still creating something unique and sort of customized to our own west coast style and that's where i think that's why i think we blossomed you know when we did just kind of blew up in the 90s yes. with all the g-funk and all that kind of stuff is because it was already brewing under the surface for absolutely. us it was destined for the west coast to, to come absolutely up. i remember i used to go and i was just like you incognito i was one of those guys well actually one of those kids i was holding up the wall and i was mm -hmm. just happy just to be there yeah man, yeah, yeah to see people I, I never danced you know but i just wanted to to see and to soak it all in. Yeah. I remember I would come home and I would put on my headphones and bump one of the songs on a cassette that I just heard, like the show. And I'd be sitting there in my bed with my eyes wide open, just yeah. one day type of mentality. Yeah. One day. Yeah. Because it's funny because um, when I would see people like Dougie or Run DMC or Curtis Blow or Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five, Bambada and those cats, this is in their early early stages yes so they weren't these big big names like they are now so you were able to really literally stand five feet away and touch them you know k-day would bring them down will smith i mean man there's so many um artists that are so huge now that started out with just literally nothing you know it's amazing like being at world on wheels and being yeah. at skateland or being at eve after dark or being at the uncle jam's army you know parties or being at olympic auditorium and I remember one time, you know, uh, I was, you're probably going to hate me for telling this story, <laughs> but I'm going to tell it anyway. <clears throat> um, I was backstage with uh, Cut Creator and, and LL Cool J. And we were at the, uh, I believe it was the Olympic Auditorium. Greg Mack had brought, you know, LL out here. He had a few songs out. He was kind of, you know, on the rise, kind of blowing up. And so, um, so we backstage, man, we kicking it and everything. He's about to go on and maybe like, maybe like 10, 15 minutes. All of a sudden he breaks out into this cold sweat and he starts like breathing hard and just, you know, pacing back and forth. This is LL Cool J, big dude, you know, he's about six, two, six, three, you yeah. know, he's pacing back and forth. He's pulling on his collar and he's doing all these different things. 
And I'm looking at Cut Creator, and he's like, like, well, whatever, you know, like, I've seen this before, and yeah. new. So I'm kind of, you know, freaking out a little bit, like, dang, what? I'm like, you all right, man? You cool? Everything cool? <laughs> oh, man, I don't know, man. Oh, man, oh, had they heard my songs yet, man? What songs? Have they heard I Need Love? Yeah, man. Have they heard I Need a Beat? Yeah, man, they heard it all, man. You're going to be all right, man. Just get on out there. You know, you're going to be cool. And so he finally, you know, ooh, I don't know. I don't know. So he finally calmed, calmed down a little bit. Greg Mack calls him out on stage. Man, as soon as that dude got on stage, Milky, and I'm back. I'm like, that wasn't the same person. That right, just, right. But that was the first time I had ever seen somebody have a panic attack. But he pushed through all of that yeah. and was able to get out there on stage. And again, if you had never seen that, you would have never known girls screaming, people screaming in the crowd, all that kind of stuff for him. So I guess he... That's just his thing. Yeah. And I talked to some other people and they said, yeah, yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him do that before. I'm like, wow. You know, I will say this. I've seen not a lot, but I've seen several LL Cool J shows. And I will say this. And I saw him perform live just recently on TV for that Dick Clark show, The Countdown. That, yeah. Okay. I've never seen a whack LL show. Never. I've never seen one. Uh, of course, I could say things about certain rappers, but I've never seen one on LL. And I'm glad you shared that story uh, uh, because to me, that's one of the greats as yeah. well. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, was there ever any rapper that stood out to you the most that you said, man, I like his ass. Like, he's freaking dope, you know, from back in the days, whether it be Melly Mel or whether it be Kumol D or whatever. Well, you know, you know in my top five, of course, Melly Mel has to be being there. And I have bad love and respect, you know, for Melly Mel, um, both personally and professionally. Yes. Um, and Kumo D, um, I've been compared to Kumo, um, <laughs> you know, because of the, the vernacular and, and the way that I speak. And we're both college, you know, college educated and stuff like that. Um, he's definitely another one. But I would say from just from a pure standpoint, Rakim. Rakim. Yeah, Rakim yeah. Uh, is, is probably... Uh, one of the best for me, you know, uh, in terms of that. It's funny because people have always asked me whenever I've done like interviews, like, uh, uh, who, who are you, like, top two, three? And here's what I say. Uh, I will say, and to me, they're not in order, but I will say these two, I always go back and forth. It's either Rakim or KRS One. Mm -hmm. And I always say, it doesn't get any more hip hop than that. Yeah. Th those are like my two, if you will, rap idols. And then I have to put LL right. right you know, I would, I, I, I'm going to say it like this too. Rakim, because of his lyrical flow, his choices, and just the way that he just catches that beat and rides it. He's got that lazy style, but at the same time, it's still on, on beat. It's still a cool, jazzy flow. KRS-One is probably one of the best, you know, impromptu freestyle MCs, you know, uh, that I've seen, you know, do it. I mean, there's a few others out there that can really, you know, do that, but he's probably one of the top that, uh, that definitely I've seen, you know, per I was supposed to perform with him in uh, Monterey, man. I was so bummed because I was supposed to get on stage. We're going to do this thing. And, uh, I, the, the promoters, <clears throat> I guess they didn't check the equipment right uh -huh. and the stuff caught on fire. And everybody had to vacate the uh, the theater, but uh, yeah, I, I missed that man. So if I ever get a chance again, man, I'm gonna definitely perform. You know, with Karis one. Okay, I'm gonna put you on the spot really quick. A rapper's sure. question: Rakim or Nas? Wow, um, because because they're kind of from two different sort of time periods. Um, but if I were to flip a coin, I would want it to land on Rakim. Okay, you know, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, now, <laughs> I'm I'm glad you said that, brother, because I love rock, I love me some rock cam. Yeah. Uh, um, other than that, as far as you know, you, um, 
you said Rakim, KRS. Um, around when did you start? How would you say? Um, what is the what was the as far as the world class wrecking crew yeah. around? How old were you when that happened? If you will, I was about 16, 17. Okay, um, because you know at that time Eve After Dark let you in if you you could be fourteen, fifteen, sixteen on up to eighteen years old, party all night. Right. So that was the only spot we kind of had in that neighborhood where it was relatively safe. Um, you could party all night. Um, and, you know, they had some pretty cool acts coming through there. Right. And so we would go there, me and Joe Cooley, our little, you know, DJ crew that we had called okay. uh, the Invasion Force. The Invasion and, Force. Yeah. And our production company was Diamond Star Productions. <laughs> uh, we had these little, you know, cars made up, all four names on it. And people were like, well, which one do I, uh, phone numbers too, which one do I call? So I started getting smart. I'm circling my name. You call that one. The one that's circled. Right. Um, but, you know, we had a little crew, me, uh, New York, Nick, Carlos, and, and Joe. Let me stop you right there. Sure. And I hate to do that, but I need to ask because I'm a, not only is Joe, I consider him a good friend, but I'm also a fan of Joe Cooley because I consider Joe and me and my friend were talking about this. We called him the Michael Jordan of DJing at that time. Yeah. Because you wouldn't want to go one on one no, with the guy. No, no, no. You wouldn't. And I'm going to say it again the Michael Jordan of DJing. Now, uh, uh, before we go to break, let me ask you a question. How did you come to meet Joe? We grew up together. We grew up in you know, Ujima Village okay. uh, together. He lived on the Clovis side, I lived on the Wadsworth side. And sometimes the, you know, Clovis gang would get together with the Wadsworth gang. We'd play football or basketball. It'd be, you know, healthy, friendly competition. Sometimes yes. we got into fights, but you know, it was, it was all good. So Joe lived on Clovis side and I lived on Wadsworth and okay. we just, you know, struck up a friendship. And then when we got into music, we just started doing music together, started DJing together and stuff like that. It's okay. a cool, he was a cool person. You know, I, I usually gravitate more towards like laid back kind of people. Yeah. And you know, Joe, Joe was that kind of person. He was yeah. kind of laid back. And and so yeah, we just became friends, and uh, you know, shoot, man, the rest is history from there. And you guys formed that group, okay. yeah. Formed a little crew and got our little equipment together, hustled up some money, and uh, you know, we just start, uh, you know, putting it out there. Okay, we're gonna come back and pick up at the eve after dark on how you came to meet, if you will, or how the beginning of the world class wrecking crew came together. We'll pick it up after this break. Cool. Uh, once again, Rodian Radio, episode 27. Call somebody, text somebody, slap the hell out of somebody. <laughs> let them know that clientele is in the building, okay? Yeah. Once again, you hit me on the Super Chat for uh, uh, 25 bucks. I'll send you all four this week. They're, they're going out actually all tomorrow, okay? So once again, call somebody, let them know the clientele of the world-class wrecking crew is in the building. We'll be back in 10 minutes. Go grab a beer. We'll see you in a minute. Yeah, all right, cool. All right, make sure you send me some booty pics, okay? All right. Oh, shit, we're back on. I got to go later. All right, everybody, welcome to uh, Rodian Radio, episode 27. Uh, I was just talking to um, nobody. But anyways, uh, I hope you call somebody, you text somebody, slap the hell out of somebody, let them know that clientele is in the building. Yeah. So we're going to go ahead and pick up right where we left off because we have so much rich history that we have to cover. Uh, somebody asked uh, to explain what it just, does your hat mean? Oh, this is just uh, actually a basketball team, okay. um, a celebrity basketball game that I was in that uh, we, uh, you know, we played in the, the Aces as one of the sides okay. uh, that I played for. So, yes, it's, it's nothing but a celebrity basketball game that I was in. <laughs> yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, um, now, uh, 
earlier we were talking about during the break actually we we're talking about you being a, a dj as well mm -hmm. you know um can, can, when did you start that or when did you pick that up well i started out in a group uh called the invasion force okay that was me dj joe cooley and uh you know rodney and joe cooley fame uh new york nick and the goofball of the team called his name is carlos okay uh, later on, uh, Crazy Tunes joined the group, and then also DJ Aladdin, M-Walk, we'd see him around sometimes, he'd mix it up with us, and DJ Speed. But uh, for the most part, it was the four of us, okay. me, Nick, uh, Joe, and Carlos, and we formed a little crew. I actually met Joe because we grew up in Eugene Village together, and he lived on the Clovis side, and I lived on the Wadsworth side. Anybody that's from the village or grew up in the village, they know what I'm talking about. Um, one street was Wadsworth, the other street was Clovis. And every now and then we'd meet in the middle called the big field. It was this big patch of, you know, grass. Well, sometimes it was grass. Most times it was dirt. And we'd play football or baseball or just, you know, maybe go and play some basketball against each other. It was like friendly competitions. Right. And so me and Joe, we just struck up a friendship because, you know, he's pretty laid back type dude. I'm pretty laid back. So, you know, we struck up a friendship and became friends. And when the whole DJ and thing started to blow up and Uncle Jam's army started to blow up, we were like, well, you know, let's put our own crew together. So we did that. We'd go to, you know, dances and parties and try to figure out, well, what are they doing? How's the scratching happening? What's, what, what are they making this sound from? Right. And what kind of equipment are they using? We go watch DJ Yellow over at Eve After Dark. We go to Uncle Jam's Army and watch Egypt do his thing. You know, we go different places. So finally, we put some money together and got our equipment and got some business cards and, you know, put on there Diamond Star Productions Invasion Force. We had like four different names, four different numbers on there. So people be like, well, who do I call? You know, so I got slick. I started circling my name. And right. I just call that number right there. Right. So I started handling all the business. But, you know, that's how it happened, man. And that's how I became a DJ and started did, getting did into DJing it. Did DJing come easy to you? Um, I would say it was intuitive, but at the same time, you know, you, you still had to, I still had to work at it Right. when I could get the time to work at it because, because it was four of us, we would share the equipment and we uh -huh. agreed that maybe one weekend, one person would have the equipment over their house and next week, somebody else, next week, somebody else, but we could still practice uh -huh. at each other's houses. So I'd go over Joe's house sometimes when he had the equipment. I'd be over there maybe like 6, 7.30 in the morning and, you know, I come in there and he's in there mixing, trying to do his thing, perfect his little scratches. And so I'm sitting there waiting two hours, two and a half, three hours like, man, is he going to finish? He's going to give me a chance to, you know, mix. So I'm like, man, I got to go somewhere. I'll be back. I'm going to get something to eat. I come back two and a half hours, two hours, three hours later. He's still trying to perfect that same scratch, right? But he had that work ethic that was so dope that it rubbed off on all of us. And... When I didn't get a chance to mix, I just said, well, I'm just going on and practice my rhymes, get my rhyme skills together. And while he was doing his thing over there, I was coming up with routines in my head that we could do together. So when we went out and did parties and dances or whatever we did, just rock shit. yeah, we just made it happen, man. And we, we just, you know, traded off on each other and hit it off really well like that. Didn't even have to do a whole lot of talking. We just had that kind of connection. You That's know? dope. You know, yeah. one thing I will say about Joe is that um, when I first saw Joe, you know, tear it up. It was the year, and I don't remember the year, but it was the year that Let's Work came out by Prince. Oh, yeah. Especially because yeah. I'm a big Prince guy, okay? I love Prince. And I remember when he asked me for two. Right. I I'll be honest with you. It was the first time I ever seen a DJ ask for two. Yeah. You know, they'd always have one, mix another song into it. Right. Put in, you know, and he go, I go, what you going to do with it? And he uh, said, well, I'm going to mix it. 
But that was the year that, that I met him. It was when Let's Work came out. Prince had just came out with that controversy album. Mm -hmm. And we had two uh, mm -hmm. promotional copy, Let's Work, 12 inches. Joe. So let me tell you a little secret about Joe, a lot of people don't know, is Joe was a musician, right? His father grew up playing the guitar. Wow. So Joe would incorporate a lot of that rhythmic styling yes. into his turntable. So he literally turned the turntable into an instrument. And we would actually, it was funny because we, me and him would sit around and talk like, man, what if it was a way you can like, you know, when you write music, you can, you can write a scratch, you know, you could like, what's a, what would be a symbol for scratching? And it was just weird how we were thinking like that, even, you know, back then in yes. high school. Well, the guy's amazing, bro. The guy's yeah. amazing, oh, yeah. you know, and, and it's down. funny. I've always thought guys that scratch left-handed always made it seem like if they were playing like a guitar, like an instrument. That's, that's him. That's him. And that's how I had to learn how to scratch. I'm right-handed, but I had to learn left-handed because he was left-handed. So I ended up, you know, being pretty good on both hands. Wow. Wow. So now you guys land at Eve After Dark. Uh, if I'm correct, I think there was either like an MC contest going on. Yeah, yeah. Well, what happened was the, the week before, you know, Lonzo said, yeah, you know, next week we're going to have this contest and, you know, bring your best rhymes and, you know, you're a good MC. You know, Alonzo talk, you know, he talks it up. So me and a friend of mine named McKinley, who would be a part of our crew sometimes, he'd help us move equipment or, you know, me and him would rap together. We said, man, let's put it together a little routine. You know, we're going to come back next week. We'll win this contest with like $100 or something like that. So <clears throat> we did that, worked on a routine all that week. Um, had it going on, you know, it was like a harmony type rhyme thing, like double trouble, you know, funky four plus one kind of situation. And so, um, we had it down to perfection. So he called me that day and said, man, I can't make it. I'm like, why not? What happened, man? We worked on this routine all week. What you talking about, man? Right. So I was pissed. So he's like, man, I'm, I'm just tired up. You know, I, I can't make it. I'm sorry, man. Just do one of those routines you do with Joe, man. Go and do that. You know, you'll rock it. You'll rock it. So I was like, all right, man, whatever. So I went up there. And what I noticed was that the other MCs were not engaging the crowd. I mean, they were talking about themselves. You know, I got cars, I got the clothes, I got the Gucci, I got the fur, all that kind of stuff. Cool, whatever. You know, they were talking about how they were ladies, men, and players, and all that. That was great, wonderful. But what I noticed was they were not engaging the crowd. I'm like, that's not hip hop. You gotta, you gotta get the crowd involved. It's for the people. Yeah. So the first thing I did, man, I went up there and started doing the whole call and response thing. Everybody say this and that. You know, all that kind of stuff just going off. And to see. That group of 14, 15, 16 year olds screaming like that, you know, it was amazing to, to see that and hear that. It did help too that I had the deck stacked a little bit because some of the homies from, you know, Ujima Village were there too. And so, right. you know, that was cool. But for the most part, you know, I had my own routine, you know, down. I had my own thing, you know, in terms of engaging the crowd because that was important to me because that's how I gauged like how well I was doing and not like how well the crowd was, right. was interacting. So um end up winning the contest and you know Lonzo announced me as a winner. Yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, I'm like, oh, that's cool, all right, but where's my money? <laughs> Gee, where's my hundred dollars at? Yeah. So he said, Man, let me talk to you. So he pulled me to the side and he said, Listen, I'm working on this thing right now. I got this idea I'm working on and I want you to come by, you know, this week and uh let's talk about it some more. I'm like, All right, that's great. Well, he ain't paying me my money, so yeah, I'm definitely gonna come. Yeah. And the day that I came I noticed that it was a cat that was up there practicing on the turntables who I went to junior high school with. 
And I was like, wait a minute, I know that dude from somewhere. So I went and talked to Lonzo and, you know, we talked about, uh, you know, me getting into the wrecking crew. And, and he was like, yeah, man, I've been looking for somebody like you and MC. I'm thinking about making some records now and all that. Have you ever made a record before? No, nah, I ain't never made a record before. Well, yeah, man. I'm So I was excited about that. But I'm still like, yeah, but he ain't paid me my money yet. Right, right. So he finally paid me my money. And as I was walking out, I said, oh, that's Dre. So I'm like, well. It might be something cool because if he's in it, then it might be something cool. And, right. and and I went back and I talked to Joe and Carlos and the other guys and said, "Look, man, this might be something cool for all of us. You know, I'll see, I'll check it out. I keep one foot in here and one foot in there, and I'll see what happens. You know, and uh, and I kept my promise. I would bring Joe up because at that time, Lonzo didn't know I was a DJ too. But when he found that I was a DJ, he said, oh, that's cool. Well, you take the first set or the second set on the night and, you know, and Dre will do a set and Yellow do a set and like that or Unknown will do a set. So what I would do is when Joe would come up there, I'd sneak him in there on my sets on the turntables. Right. And Dre and him be like looking at me like, man, what you doing? You don't, you're getting pissed at me. Right. Oh, that's cool. He good. He good. He cool. But, yeah, that's how, you know, I joined the Wrecking Crew. Uh, we went into the studio um, a few weeks later, cut the first record, Slice. You know, it went wood. You know, but but it but what we did was we learned about the music industry, right? We learned right. about you know being in the studio, uh, mixing a record down, then taking it and pressing it up, and then marketing it and putting it in the stores and you know promoting it. We learned all that stuff on the fly. Nobody was telling us. People right. were trying to hold the information away from us and keep us from you know knowing what was going on. But we got slick. And we just started asking questions and we started kind of probing people and Lonzo started going out and, and, and asking, well, what is this all about? So we got fortunate enough to connect with Greg Mack because at that time, Uncle Jam's Army was the crew that was on the radio doing right. Saturday night mixes. And I guess Greg and Roger had a falling out. Greg and Roger Clayton. Yeah, Roger Clayton from Uncle Jam's Army, Mr. Prince, all that good stuff. And... So K-Day was looking for a new DJ crew to sort of do their Saturday night mixes and sometimes do the remotes and that kind of thing. And so Lonzo was going up to K-Day to uh, sell advertisement for the club. Okay. And him and Greg struck, struck a conversation about, um, yeah, man, I need a DJ crew. You know anywhere I can find one from? This is Greg asking Lonzo this. And Lonzo starts smiling like, hell yeah, I know where you can find one. You're talking to him, you know? Yeah. And so he came back to us and like, yo, we're going to be doing, you know, mixes on K-Day, you know, on the radio. I'm like, all right, whatever. You know, ain't no different than what we're doing now. So we developed this four-track sort of mixing style. Um, we didn't develop. We probably learned it from somewhere. So we bought a four-track recorder and we would lay down sort of like a... A basic track, you know, from instrumentals. Like a bottom beat. Exactly. And then we'd come back and mix other stuff on top of it. And then when we started doing, because Greg came back and said, man, you guys are doing so good with these Saturday night mixes. I want to do something called a traffic jam mix from 5 to 5.30 every day, you know, to kind of give people something different to drive to during traffic. So we like, fuck it, we're going to get creative. Right. And we started throwing in skits. I started doing like, you know, voices and, and different characters, Ronald Reagan, all this kind of stuff. And we would, so we would keep it entertaining and we would keep it different with Dre and Yellow on the mix and sometimes me on the mix too. I don't get credit for doing the mixes in the traffic jam. I did some of those too. I was one of the mix masters too. But um, long story short of it, man, is that's how we were able to sort of kind of take control of the narrative in hip hop because this power radio was powerful at that time. Yeah. And K-Day was bouncing its signal all the way from here up to Oakland. 
So we didn't even know people in Oakland, you know, would hear it because, you know, AM, FM is like a straight shot in terms of the, the science of radio, right? You have to have a line of sight to, to get an FM signal, but AM bounces on the ground. And so it would hit at certain points all up and down the California coastline. Right. And people would tell us, man, we heard y'all in, you know, Fresno, man, we heard y'all in Oakland. How the hell are you hearing us all the way up there? Well, because that signal was bouncing. Right. And if you were in the right spot, you could catch it. So Wrecking Crew was blowing up as a DJ crew. And we were like, yo, it's time for us to start making some more records now. So then we went back in and we did uh, surgery because the idea was every time Uncle Jam's Army made a song, we wanted to make a song. And we wanted to just kind of one up them. So one it was up. that friendly competition. Right. And then eventually, you know, LA Dream Team, they jumped in. Um, they were kind of riding and rocking with Uncle Jam's Army. Then Ice T, he jumped in, and New York City Spin Masters with Eva Lee and, and NG, they jumped in it. So it just kind of became this thing. And the next thing you know, somebody got smart. The promoters got smart. Say, hey, wait a minute. All these crews are blowing up individually. Why don't I just put them all together on a tour? Right. And that was one of the smartest things that a promoter could do because we went all up and down with us, Arabian, Russ Parr, Uncle Jam's Army, um, you know, Henji, Evil Lee, Ice-T, just going up and down touring and, and, and really fattening up the whole West Coast scene. Like wow. That. Do you remember the name of that tour? Like, I do not. Name? I, I don't think it had a name. Um, okay. But I do know a couple of times we got into some trouble in a few places because, you know, some of the cats couldn't keep it in their <laughs> pants right. And uh, yeah, there was one town where uh, the sheriffs were after us, and we had to hurry up and pack it up and, and get oh, on wow. the body. Oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. Now, okay, just just for the public, for those of you that have just joined just joined us, um, we're talking about Dr. Dre, DJ Yella, because I know we know them. Uh, you know them obviously a lot right. better than I do, but because a lot of times we say Dre, but this is Dr. Dre, yeah. this is DJ Yella, and when you say Greg Mac, a lot of times people confuse it with Craig yeah. Mac. Uh -huh. But this is Greg Mac from KD. Uh, Craig Mac, rest in peace. Yeah. But now this radio station, to make it clear to this new generation, this was AM radio. It wasn't FM. Nope. It was AM radio. And and I always said that if you couldn't get a good signal, you weren't listening to hip hop. That's right. You know, period. So now you got to go back in and do surgery. Now, were you the lead uh, vocalist or? I did uh, all the vocals. Okay. Uh, all the lyrical writing for it and some of the music. Drake okay. did the beat. Okay. And that was it. It was just me and Drake. Okay. Um, now, I have a question for you. Okay. Why in the video, why do they have somebody else? Right. Shakespeare. Right. Can you explain that to sure, us? Sure, sure, sure. So, um, we're jumping ahead a little, but I will say this. Shakespeare was actually in the group at the same time as me. Okay. And Shakespeare was our backup dancer. He came through um, when Ice Cube and Jinx and those guys, because Shakespeare is Dre's cousin. Okay. So, and Jinx is also Dre's cousin. Right. So, when Shakespeare was there, I think he had just come out of the army or something like that. Hell of a dancer. You know, he could, you know, he had, you know, moves and, and spins and all that kind of stuff. So, we needed that kind of thing on the road because we were really, truly touring with R&B bands and, and, you know, kind of that kind of thing. So, we kind of had to have that kind of showmanship going on, that kind of production. So, Shakespeare was our backup dancer. He and I were around the same height. Um, he's a little older than me, but, you know, sort of the same build. Right. So when I left the crew, okay. they were like, yo, well, you know, let him be clientele for a while because we got these contracts. We're, we're still under these mm -hmm. agreements. Okay. And nobody really knows. So we're just going to make him, 
you know, we're going to call him clientele. And, you know, he still he still feels bad to this day. Man, I'm so sorry, man, that I used your name. I'm saying, look, man, no hard feelings, no grudges or anything like that. It's all good. Okay. You know, but, you know yeah. when Lonzo was here, I, but I'll be honest with you, because uh, he said in an interview one time that he was back there playing the keyboard. Yeah, and the then I, I said, let's be honest, Lonzo, you said you, you didn't know how to play nothing. No. He, he goes, I don't give a damn. He goes, I'm going to be in the video, so I'm going to play. And I said, you look dope. He was because I wasn't even playing anything. No, he wasn't. You know? so, yeah, look, man, it's funny because you know Lonzo's a little older than us, and his initial role was as the manager and right. sort of like you know finding the gigs, um, you know, sort of managing the money, managing the the you know the shows and that kind of thing. But when we started to blow up and get a lot of attention, mainly from women. He's like, oh, no, nah, uh -uh, I got to get in the group. So right. he put himself in the group because initially it was a rapper and two DJs. You know, it was right. me and then Dre and, and Yella. And then occasionally uh, Dre would come in and say, well, I had to actually force Dre to, you know, really start rapping because he was really reserved, you know, a shy dude. And I believe one day, you know, because uh, we had just made surgery and it was blowing up and girls were screaming for the song. So I turned to him and said, man, say something, you know, and he's behind the turntables and he goes, hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Dr. Dre. And the girls start screaming and he looked up like, holy shit, what is this? And so from that point on, couldn't shut him up. Couldn't, couldn't shut him up. Wow. It, it was wow. done. It was done. It was over. It was over. So um, that's dope. You, you, now, 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 I'm going to share something about uh, about uh, Joe, what he said at one time about Dr. Dre. And it was me and my brother in the car one time. And then I'm going to ask you a question about a world-class wrecking crew single. Okay. Mm -hmm. One time, uh, my brother had picked up Joe when he, well, obviously he was staying in Compton at the time, but it was off of Mayo Street, M-A-Y-O. Oh, yeah. yeah, I know okay. what I said. We picked him up. We took him to Grand Central Station and uh, the club in Long Beach and we were taking him home. Now, during that time in the, in the 80s, you know, Dre was also known as a dope DJ. Yeah. Okay. So one time my brother asked him, hey, man, can you get Dre? And here's what he said. He goes, Jay don't want to see me. Well, I, you know, listen, I, and again, knowing both of them, um, yeah, he's right. <laughs> he's right. I mean, you know, listen, Dre had his strengths. He was very good. He, has a, he had a really good ear yes. for music and a really good ability to blend sounds together that you would think would never match right. you know i mean he had this one mix that was so cool we called it the postman mix yeah. he, he would take uh that jive track jive 122 or something 122 like that jive rhythm track yeah and then he would take that with uh the postman song and blend them together so cool so it was it was like this old school song mixed in at that time with this you know current hit right and uh, it sounded so good, and people would just get on the dance floor, almost like it was just a like a brand new song. Right. So Dre had that really, uh, really good ability and real good ear for for blending music together. Very good ear for music, solid. As a matter of fact, that mix is on eighty six oh, in the mix. Oh, dope, dope, dope. Eighty six in the mix. So if you drop twenty five on the super chat, that's what you'll get. That's what's up. And then Joe, again, his strengths were his ability to cut and scratch with such precision yes. and speed that it was mind-blowing you know it was just he was like you called him you know the michael jordan or the Jimi hendrix of of scratch man yes. and, and joe was that type of dude so they had their own strengths i guess in in different ways and me being a brother to both i would i would say that you know i I'd take either, either one of them any day and uh you know um have them behind me you know oh, rocking oh. rocking the crowd you know you know uh, um 
on that song, Juice, yeah. Give Me Some Juice. Yeah. Okay. It, that was a DJ favorite, especially because the 12 inch on the other side had a cappella. Yeah. Clientele. Yeah. Lonzo. I'm clientele. Get the fuck out. Motherfucker, say what? All that. Boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Oh, and, my God. And they use that in um, the NWA Boys in the Hood song as well. They cut that in there too. So, so all that was you. Yeah, that's all me. So even that lap. <laughs> that that's crap. Lonzo. Really? Yeah, that's Lonzo. Lonzo did the laugh, but all the other stuff, the boom, 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 but yeah, all that stuff is me. Because I remember we said like, boom, 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 like we do. Oh. And we did it for that reason, because we said, look, we're DJs. We want DJs to be able to scratch something. Yeah. So let's do something on the back acapella that DJs can scratch. And that's that's exactly why we did it, as DJs thinking about other DJs. That shit was hard, bro. That shit was hard, man. You, you guys made my my childhood, my upbringing cool. dope, bro. So thank you. you I mean, know. we were hip. We, you know, we, we're hardcore hip hop heads, you know, and that's that's something that we've always stayed true to. You know, we love hip hop. And I think when people look at sort of the music or they, they sort of look at the mystique of, of NWA or the mystique of Wrecking Crew, what they sort of kind of get pushed to the back is that we were true hardcore hip hop heads. Yella learned from Davey DMX how to scratch, you know. Yeah. Um, I was influenced by Curtis Blow and Kumo D and all of those guys coming up, Melly Mel and, you know, Spoonie G and Houdini and all those cats. Um, you know, Yellow was a, um, a, a drummer, you know, that had that kind of influence. Yeah. Like, and I said, and, and with Dre, he was just young, soaking it all up as it was going along. So he was just really soaking a lot of quiet, but soaking it all up like a sponge. And then, you know, in the nineties, as you know, the story goes late eighties, early nineties, it just blossomed. Yeah. It was already there. Yeah. It was just simmering under, under the, you know, the surface. And, and yeah. he was, he was destined to be who he is. It was no question for me. And even when Cube, you know, when Cube came along, um, that's a whole nother story. And I don't know how much time we got for that. Okay. But okay, we'll get to that. But what I want to touch on is the infamous world-class Wrecking Crew album cover. Ah, yes. Okay. Purple suits. Yes. Did, did, did anybody have anything against wearing that? Absolutely not. Okay. Nobody did. And in fact, you know, Dre's mother designed those suits. Really? Yeah. Wow. Th yeah. Thank you for that, bro. Because, because <coughs> I, I, I didn't know. But yeah. I'll tell you what. You know, people try to say, well, look at the world class record. Look at the way they dress. Motherfucker, I thought that shit was fucking Listen, dope. Listen, you, you can't take something 30 years later out of context and go, oh, look at that. That looks a little suspect. The reality is this. We were Prince Michael Jackson fans. And we had to tour with R&B groups. You know, Time, Climax, Timex Social Club. And... <clears throat> The audience was that audience. So we had to cater to that audience. Otherwise, we looked like stand out like sore thumbs, look odd, you know, oddballs out. No, we didn't wear uh, lipstick. So let me get that clear. No, none of us wore lipstick. Um, I believe Yella and Dre put a little, you know, eyeliner on and maybe a, uh, maybe some uh, lip, not lip gloss, but, you know, the stuff that keeps your lips from you getting all chapstick. Chap or yeah, chapstick. And, that's pretty much what it was. There was some purple lighting, smoke going up. So it looks all purpley. But again, we were Prince fans. And I have no no regrets for that. Dope. Now, now, where was that picture taken? That actual studio? It was taken, I believe, at McCola Records. Second really? floor. Yeah. Wow. Wow. And and when you saw it, when you saw the picture, the final picture, were you like, that shit is dope? 
Yeah, because we picked it from like several several pictures, you know, that we had, and because uh, if you notice, um, <clears throat> there's also a like a promo picture, a black and white promo, and then there's another another um, picture that's slightly different. But we all sat down together, the four of us, and said, "Yeah, that one, that one, that one, that one, like that." When that picture <clears throat> was taken, how old were you? About seventeen. See, I would have never have thought that, man. Yeah, and I said, "I'm gonna throw my, I'm, I'm gonna throw my, uh, I'm gonna unbutton my shirt to look, you know, look sexy on it." So yeah, yeah that's what, but again, and, and we weren't really trying to make uh, that look for dudes. Of course, of course, we're not. making that for the girls. Straight well, up, straight I, up. I'll say this as a DJ because we knew who Dr. Dre was, but when we saw Dr. Dre and that doctor uniform, yeah, outfit, I'm not gonna lie to you. I thought that shit was hard. Well, look, it was a whole thing because we started to understand marketing and we started to understand that you had to have a, a hook not just a, a hook in your songs but mm -hmm. a visual hook yeah. we, we were getting more and more savvy about the industry and really how to sell and there was no one else giving us this advice no one was telling us what to do we were creating these things on our own as we figured you know figured it out i like to tell uh people particularly like when i talk to newer MCs or, or newer artists or anybody that, that wants to get into entertainment and want to understand better, you have to have something called metacognitive thinking. And metacognitive thinking is that ability to step outside of yourself and be able to judge the situation or judge yourself as if you are an, uh, an objective observer. So we were starting to really develop that more. And as your ear gets better and your understanding of the industry gets better, yeah, you figure things out. So to this day, um, we're named as one of the top 25 dressed, well-dressed hip-hop groups in history. So, you know, go figure. We did something right. That shit is hard, man. I liked it. So, I know surgery came out. Juice came out. I called it Give Me Some Juice. Yeah. And even even in there at the <clears> very <throat> end, you guys mentioned all these high schools. Mm -hmm. And Banning High School Banning, was, yep. was mentioned. I remember I was like, yes. Because Banning gave us love, man. You know, Banning gave us love. Um, of course, Locke, Fremont, um, some of those places were... You know, we some of us actually attended um, and places that, you know, gave us love, man. So that's why we did that. You know, we wanted oh. to show that back, you know, for sure. W w was there a third single off of that? Or was it was it Turn Off the Lights, if I'm correct? Um, lovers, Lovers. Lovers, Lovers, that's right. Uh, you had World Class, Lovers. You had um, Surgery, uh, Horny Computer, all those. Yeah. Right, right. Dre's oh. Beat. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna go ahead and press pause right there. We're gonna come back. Uh, I want I want you to share a little bit about uh, Ice Cube. Yeah, uh, and then your departure from the group, mm -hmm. and we'll get into your book. Cool, cool, cool. So once again, everybody, uh, if you drop twenty five on the super chat, you'll get all these uh, four CDs. Uh, they, they go ten bucks a piece, but I'm, I'm getting rid of them for four for twenty five. I'll mail them out tomorrow. Um, once again. Uh, 86 in the mix is that mix that he was talking about with Mr. Postman and uh, Drive Rhythm Tracks. Uh, somebody asked me, okay, how do I pay for it? You pay for it, then you email us at uh, um, rodeonradio at gmail.com. You email us your, your name, your YouTube name, and your address, and we'll get it out to you. So once again, you uh, email us at rodeonradio at gmail.com, um, and we'll mail them out to you. And for those of you that uh, want to, uh, if you will, request a guest or have any questions or comments or want to submit music or videos at rhodiumradio at gmail.com that's where you send everything 
please do not send me stuff to my inbox. Do not send me stuff to my DM. So maybe you guys have done that. I'll just leave it on red. I will not even reply because every week I say, please send it to rodeonradio at gmail.com and we'll get back to you as soon as possible. So once again, call somebody, text somebody, slap the hell out of somebody and let them know that clientele is in the building. World-class wrecking crew, baby. We'll be back in 10 minutes. Yo, everybody, what's, what's up? Welcome back to Rodeo Radio, episode 27 with clientele. I hope you guys yeah. call somebody, page somebody, slap somebody. As a matter of fact, break a bottle over somebody's head and let them know that clientele is in the building. And we're going to jump right back into it. Yes, so once again, uh, you were sharing with us that uh, your story about Cube. Yeah. <clears throat> so, Ice Cube. So, you know, uh, Jinx is Dre's cousin, right? Yes. And back then, man, you know about the equipment you got to move, you know, the big speakers and the turntables and the compressors and the crossovers and all this kind of stuff that you had to move back and forth because we were mobile DJs and we would do remotes and we would do our own concerts where we would supply our own equipment. And we would go from the club, Eve After Dark, over to Doodles Music Center or Skateland USA <laughs> and we'd bring all our stuff in. So we needed a lot of people. We needed a lot of hands for that kind of stuff, right? So, you know, cats like Jinx, who we knew from, you know, being part of the family and, and that kind of thing, would help us out. Yeah. And Jinx would always tell us, you know, well, really bug us. Hey, man, I got this group and, you know, we got, you know, we got rappers and turntables and everything. We got Y'all got to come check us out. Me and Dre, he was always telling me and uh, Dre that. And we're like, nah, we don't have time for that kind of stuff, man. You know, you know, just stay in school, you know, do your homework, stuff like that. So finally one day, I think it was maybe Ice Cube's birthday or something. Jinx, you got to come. You got to come, man. We having a party. Come on over. So we went over to the house over there on Van Wick. Van Wick and uh, they had a little setup back there, you know, turntables and all that kind of stuff. So we didn't realize that we were going over there to see a concert. Wow. But they set us up. So me and Dre, we walk into the back and they had a little backyard boogie setup going on. And Jinx, knowing that, okay, this might be our only shot, he hurried up and jumped on the turntables. And this dude with this jerry curl jumped on the mic. And this other dude, little skinny dude, he was on another mic. So they start rapping and doing their thing. And Jinx is, you know, and I'm like, wow, they kind of look like the Wrecking Crew a little bit. They've kind of been studying us. But then when Cube started rapping, I said, wow, this dude sounds a lot like me. He's got he's got some fire. And even though he sounded like me, but he he was his delivery was so dope and it was raw. But I knew he had talent. I said, no, nah, this cat's got some talent. Um, it's raw, but, you know, we we need to work with him. So I pulled Dre to the side and said, hey, man, you know, let's just work with the little kids, man. Come on, man. Let's do something with them. Let's bring them in the studio. You know, um, you know, let them see what's going on so they can just learn a little more. Dre, nah, man, nah, man, forget that. I don't want to work with them. I don't want to fool with that. We ain't got time for that. We ain't got time for that. So I finally convinced Dre to let them come through. And we came, they came on over and you know they came to the little four track studio we call it the hot box because you know lonzo had converted his garage into an office and four track studio but there was no ac there was no ventilation there was none of that shit. so <laughs> we back there sweating all the time working and so they came back there and you know they jumped on the mic and i was you know giving them coaching them on how to you know rap on the microphone and do all this kind of stuff and cube was really inquisitive all the time and um and and there's a there's a a book coming out where he was interviewed and he talks about that time 
and he talks about me. And I'm just paraphrasing this because I don't want to give up, you know, uh, what the author has written. But in a nutshell, what what Cube said was that clientele was one of those guys that I looked up to and he was a professional and he was the kind of person that I wanted to pattern myself after as a professional. So I appreciated him even acknowledging that and saying that. But yeah, he was really, really inquisitive. He had a um, just a just a curious nature and a curious mind and and had a a just a deeper soulful attraction and love for hip hop. And those are the kind of people I tended to gravitate towards. Right. So he kind of like became, you know, like a, I was his mentor and he was like a little brother. Right. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, they did well and, and they were successful. So we helped him out with that. If I'm correct, because I believe you may know, on that song, Dope Man, an NWA, and I we're jumping a little bit ahead. Right. But Dre threw something in there in the very beginning. Yo, Dre, kick in the, the bass. Yeah. If I'm correct, that is Ice Cube. Yeah. Okay. Do you remember what song that was? Because I know it was under CIA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, they had a lot a of few. people don't know that that, that 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 was actually Ice Cube. Yeah, it's Ice Cube. Well, we you know we did just to backtrack a little more. We did actually all of us do a song together called "Bust It Up." Okay. And Barry uh, Shakespeare has a copy of that song. I gotta give him to send, send me another copy of it. But we all yeah, me, Dre, Cube, uh, Shakespeare. KD and Jinx, uh, we all got in the studio one day, with, oh, you know, wow. just messing around. And yeah, we came up with a tune called, uh, called Bust It Up. Okay. Um, so if anybody ever, if you can search it, find it, find it, you know, but it's a, it's a tune that Wrecking Crew and CIA did together. But to, you know, backtracking what you're saying about CIA, um, yeah, I'm not sure what song that is, okay. but that definitely, uh, something that, you know, Cube would, would definitely be, you know, okay. accredited for. Now, now, um, what, caused or what made you finally depart the world-class record crew? well you know it's not one answer you okay. know uh, it's not a black or white situation but i will say this um in a nutshell as we started to gain more notoriety and blow up and get recognition not just in our local community and in california but yeah. all over you know the united states internationally there were so many people coming at us at that time and we started to sort of develop our own individual little camps, right? And cliques and people who wanted to latch on. That plus, there were some managers that were coming around, you know, sniffing around, sharks trying to figure out how to, you know, worm their way into the situation. Right. Because then it wasn't about the music anymore. It wasn't about the creative side of it. It was about the money right. and how can we um, make this group or, or this product now right. into a bigger commodity. So it became more about that. For me, I was always about the art and the creative side of it and not, you know, relinquishing my soul as an artist, because again, I had my boots on the ground. I was, I was, I wanted to be recognized, not as, you know, some foofy, you know, artist up there. I wanted to be recognized as a real hip hop head. So, but, but everybody didn't see it that way. Plus, there were there were money situations going on that um, I was privileged to because I was studying the business side of it that Dre and Yella just pretty much didn't care about. So um, <clears throat> and Lonzo um, had gotten into the weeds on a lot of that kind of stuff right. and got in over his head. And as we started to make more sell more records, we weren't making more money. So I started questioning that. 
and and trying to trying to get to the bottom of it and right. figure out how we can resolve it. Right. So that was never resolved. Plus, like I said, we had these different factions, you know, pulling at us from all four sides. I was in school, so I had another sort of side of things going on. I was at that time I was, at, you know, going to the university, Cal State Fullerton. Um, so I kind of had other trajectories that I was on as well. And on top of that, um, as people, as you start to get uh, more notoriety, uh, it, it it played into the ego factor. So everybody started to get egos. Wow. And I'm not saying that I'm, you know, immune to that, but I probably had less of an ego. Okay. So I'm looking at it from that perspective too. And I decided, well, me, Dre, and Yella decided first to leave because we had talked about it and we did leave and we all left together. We were going to form our own group together. Um, so we were going for about a week. Uh, a tour came up that we were supposed to go on. The tour bus was delivered. It was sitting out there for about a week. Lonzo freaking out, calling us, trying to get in contact with us and he couldn't. So Russ Parr was having a party uh, that weekend and him and Lonzo devised a plan to try and get us all at this party together. So Dre and Yella ended up going to the party. And when they showed up, Russ Parr called him, called Lonzo and said, Lonzo, they're here. Lonzo showed up and convinced him to, to, you know, Thank come you. back. I wasn't having it because there were, there were contractual issues as well, okay. because at that time we weren't under contract, but the contract that was handed to us was not, um, it, it was, I felt was not fair. Okay. Because initially we were supposed to split everything four ways, 25% a piece. But then again, Lonzo became very savvy because he was talking to other people in business and decided that he was going to keep 55% of everything and only have us split 45% of amongst the three of us. Mm. So I'm like, yo, well, we're doing a lot of the work. Yes. Lonzo did do a lot of the management side and, and the equipment and stuff like that. But I felt that what he contributed and what we contributed was equal. And so there was a dispute there as well. Um, since been resolved, we we're good. And Lonzo and I are the best of friends. We yeah. cool now, but back then again, with all of that stuff going on, it wasn't just one particular thing. It was, it was a combination of things, sort of a comedy of errors okay. and situations going on that made, made me decide to move on. Okay. Cause I guess a after that is when I met you at uh, the nightclub Grand yeah. station, and I, I know you were there uh, emceeing when Joel was cutting. Yeah. And then there was another individual that Joel started bringing around. Uh, uh, artist. Uh, artist. Yeah, amazing artist. And then I remember you guys. I was so excited because you had told me, uh, yeah, me, Joel, and artist are going to cut a record. And the song was called, if I'm correct, Joel and artist. Well, it's called uh, It Ain't Mine. It Ain't Mine. That's yeah, right. Yeah, it was it was a, sort of a, a hip hop spin on the whole Billie Jean thing. Um, about a girl trying to tag me for being, uh, you know, saying she was the, you know, the mother of my kid. It didn't happen for real. I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm an MC. I'm, I'm a storyteller, so I can tell right. stories. It's not a, it's not a true story. It's not based on a true story, but it was an interpolation of, you know, right. Billie Jean. And I had Joe and artists cutting on it. It did some dope scratching on it. Yeah, because I, I remember, because I, I remember. If I'm correct, I was always calling your house. I had your number, and I yeah. I don't know who I was talking to. And like, hey, when's that record coming out? When's and I think it came out under that label, Prism Sutra. 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 Sutra Records. Yeah, because it was like a rainbow looking. Yeah, that's Sutra Records. Um, I yeah, I had a deal with uh, Sutra. 
Um, after I left the crew, I did some stuff with Unknown first. Um, we did uh, 2030 and the organization that was with Tony G and uh, Lirad, Dub C. I put Dub C on his first record. Wow. And then Dub C appeared also on uh, Jazzy D's record. That's what I did. So that was Dub C's first two records he had ever done. Wow. And then um, I did 2030 with Techno Hop. And at the same time I was doing that with um, Unknown, right. Dre was doing Sweat by The Mechanic with the same label. So Dre and I were actually on, after Dre and him left the crew, Dre and I were actually on Techno Hop at the same time. And we both released um, sort of electro kind of funk records that same year, but Dre went right. under, he was, you know, he decided to go under a pseudonym, uh, the mechanic and was a dope record. The sweat sweats, a dope record, 2030, you know, they were, they're kind of like in that same vein, right. but anyway, progressing forward to Sutra. Um, I got that deal through a frat brother of mine, Doug Young. Doug Young became a promoter for NWA and death row and all that kind of stuff. But Doug was hanging out with a cat named Giorgio. And Giorgio was Prince's sort of protege. Yeah. So when G Doug was hanging out with Giorgio doing records, Doug said, hey, man, I got this dude you want, I want you to meet. So I go to the studio one day, and it's Giorgio there. I was looking at just like Prince and all right. those kinds of I'm like, man, is that Prince or is that his little brother? <laughs> so um, struck up a conversation with Giorgio, and Giorgio was working with a guy named Artie Rip. And Artie Rip was a former manager of Billy Joel. So anyway, long story short of that, um, Artie and I struck up a conversation. Artie said, hey, man, you know, you're a talented guy. Um, you want to do something, you know, with um, with with another label. I said, what label? He said, Sutra Records. I said, oh, yeah, Sutra out of New York. He said, yeah, that's my label. But I had to break up the names because, you know, people were tripping on me and stuff. And I think he also, Artie also uh, was drawn towards me because of my last name, Hawkins, because he had worked with the Hawkins family with the old Happy Day song and all that. Okay. So I'm related to them. So anyway, um, struck up a, a deal with Artie and I started working on, first I did a couple of singles with him and that's one of the ones that I brought Joe in on with artists. And then we did It's Time to Jam and, and Linguistic. And um, then I started working on an actual, you know, uh, studio album with, uh, with Sutra. Then Sutra went belly up. But that's what happened, man. That's, you know, the Sutra story was was there. The oh, Sutra oh, uh, I mean, I remember... Uh, because I had uh, both 12 inches when they came out. I remember I hit up Steve Yano, yeah. uh, our mutual friend, may he rest yeah, in peace. Yeah, man. Uh, um, he, he finally, I go, dude, I've been looking for these records, and he brought me two of them. And I remember in the song, you were like, Joe, well, now it is. And they would start cutting it up. Uh, that was a dope, that was a dope record. Um, so now, three things that I want to talk about. Uh, we could talk about them however you want to. Sure. We could talk about your book. We could talk about the Universal Hip Hop Museum, or we could talk about the classes you're teaching at Northridge. Uh, however you want. To, what what All do you right, want? Let's to... talk with the classes first, then the museum, then the book. Okay. So in reverse order, where you mentioned them. Um, so the class uh, I'm teaching is called the Politics of Hip Hop. Okay. And yeah, it's at Cal State Northridge. Um, also with uh, Dr. Cedric Hackett. Um, who's um, part of the Africana Studies Department, which is the bigger school is uh, social and behavioral sciences. I mean, I have, uh, again, like I said, when I stayed in school, I really mean I stayed in school. Right. Uh, I actually have a master's degree in education. I hold a, you know, a California teaching credential and also um, a BA in African studies. So, you know, I, in addition to doing the music, I always kept one foot in, you know, the educational side. And I'm glad I did it, not because... 
you know, I wanted to prove to people that rappers can be articulate too, or that MCs and, and, and DJs and stuff like that. And people in hip hop can be articulate, nor am I an elitist by any stretch of the imagination. Cause I came from humble beginnings, you know, trust me, there were times when, you know, we barely had anything to eat, uh, or if we, if we had anything to eat at all growing up, um, you know, there were times when we were, you know, that close to being homeless. So I come from a humble beginning, so I never forget where I came from, but I always knew that striving forward and doing something that's positive and trying to leave the world better than when you came into it was was a good thing to do as well. And that's what I always believe and I carry with me. Yeah. So I, I always kept a foot in education, not <clears throat> to be an elitist, but to to know that there's always something better because it's one thing to tell people to do stuff. But if you're leading by example, it, it has it takes on a whole different meaning. So if I'm telling kids, oh, stay in school, you know, get your education, do this, and do that. And what about you? Well, I did, you know, and, and I may even one day, who knows, people have been, man, you need to go in on and pursue your PhD, you know, to get a doctorate and all that kind of stuff. So right. who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe I'll be, you know, the rapping professor, who knows? Right. But so anyway, long story short, man, um, the class um, is a really cool opportunity, I think, for the students to get an understanding of the true nature of hip hop. Okay. What we had, you know, growing up, not not the rap business today, but hip hop culture as it um, was rooted in, you know, the oppressive conditions of, you know, black and Latino youth. And as it was rooted in a need to make something out of nothing. And as it was, you know, rooted in this whole creative style that created a lifestyle that created brands. And now it's a multi, it's a trillion dollar industry now. So that's, that's kind of like where we're going with all of it. And it's interdisciplinary. So we're using, you know, hip hop, but also branding. We're also using technology, you know, Afrofuturism, all that kind of stuff awesome. to really, uh, yeah, they, they, man, they, they, I already told them, you know, they just have no clue what they're in store <laughs> for, man. It's, they're going to, wow, it's going to be made. We're going to build some disciples in there for sure. Awesome. For awesome. Disciples. That's a good one. Uh, 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 that, that's a real good thing to disciple this, these students. Um, another thing that the Universal Hip Hop Museum, yeah. how did that come about? How did you get involved and where is it going to be at? So I got involved about six or seven years ago, but a year or two before that, uh, a group of heads, you know, hip hop heads, you know, OG sat down, quadruple OG sat down and said, what are we going to do to secure our legacy? Um, we see Rock and Roll Hall of Fame over here. We see the Blues Hall of Fame. We see Elvis Presley's Graceland. We see, you know, all these different things happening. Grammy Museum. Cornell University is scooping up all kind of, you know, hip hop artifacts and, yeah. you know, memorabilia. You know, Harvard University is now getting into it. USC is getting into it. What are we going to do yeah. to make sure that we control the narrative and secure our own legacy for future generations, right? Is it about, you know, taking old records and, you know, books and artifacts and blowing the dust off and sticking them somewhere and going, wow, look, you know, look what I did back in the day? Or is it truly about, you know, the business of, of, of hip hop, the culture of hip hop, the essence of hip hop? So when I came along, I started just kind of advocating for reaching the youth and pulling in innovative ways to do that, right? Because it wasn't just about how we capture how we tell people about what happened back in the day, but we want to literally illustrate it to them, show them and capture some of that essence. Right. So then we started really just kind of pounding the pavement, trying to figure out what to do through different ideas and iterations. It was just like, well, okay, well, what do we do? How do we move this thing forward? We want, we know we want a place 
We know we want a place to put stuff in it, but what kind of stuff do we put in it? What kind of, how do we build out this, this, this idea? So we went through um, a series of spots that fell through and finally hooked up with a developer that was the same, and architects that were the same people that did the African History Museum in, in DC, Ralph Applebaum and Associates. And we brought along uh, Mike Ford, who is the hip hop architect, and Rocky Bucano, and you know Joe Conzo, and um, initially you know Curtis Blow and Ice T, and all those guys were involved. So in, in Bambada, so when we decided to really push the thing forward, we really started getting our stuff together, putting together really nice decks, professional level stuff, bringing in volunteers. Everybody's volunteers, like 41 people now working on this thing. Everybody's volunteers. We had zero dollars. Even when I came along, it was still zero dollars. Now we've been able to raise about 30 million. And but we still got a long ways to go because it takes a lot to, to do a museum, yes. to create an institution. But We've had we've gotten so much traction now just from word of mouth, just from pounding, you know, hip hop. How we do it, you know? Right. Hey, did you know there's a museum? When I first started and came along, I, I was getting cussed out. People were on the West Coast, man. What the hell are you doing with those New York dudes? You don't know them. You don't know what they all about. Whoop whoop whoop. I was getting all of that, wow. but I didn't care because I knew that it was the single most important project for hip hop, and I knew, and I was I was willing to recognize and and acknowledge that. Hip hop as we know it, where the five elements all came together, uh -huh. started in the Bronx. You know, fifteen twenty Sedgwick, Cool Herc doing his thing at his sister's birthday party, right. nineteen seventy three. That's when it started. So I'm willing to acknowledge that, but we have to be able to acknowledge that so we can we can solidify this thing and make sure we solidify the legacy. So out of that whole kind of construct. We started building on that and saying, now, how do we make it innovative? How do we make it cool? Because that's the first thing I said to him. I said, look, I'm not getting involved with this if y'all don't make it look cool. So we started thinking about innovative ways to do it. So we brought in, you know, Microsoft and, 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 and Tinkercad and Google and all these different companies. We did a we held a series of ciphers, you know, around the country. Well, we brought in everybody from all walks of life, the artists, the, the, the man on the streets, you know, kids and, and adults alike, people who love museums, people who didn't know the first thing about them. And we really did these all day sessions with them to say, what would you like to see in a hip hop museum? And we got some really good feedback in L.A., Detroit, Atlanta, New York and all these different places. And we, we consolidated all that information. And out of that, we designed something where we think is innovative, forward thinking um, that relates to all levels. And, you know, and it's really a, a, a device to move hip hop forward. We also have created something called Hip Optimus Prime, which is a traveling version of the museum. Wow. It's a, you know, a tricked out 18 wheeler that, you know, pulls up to a school or a concert, boom, 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 does this thing. You can walk through it and see a piece of the museum. We're going to have satellite campuses on the West Coast and Houston and all these different places because some of the OGs have told me, yo, man, I don't know. I want my stuff 3,000 miles away in New York. I don't know. You know, that's wow. cool. So we'll have a satellite campus here and I'm actually working with like USC and Northridge wow. and some other places to, to put those kinds of traveling exhibits up um and and what else so we we also started or launched the revolution of hip-hop which is a smaller you know dressed down version of the museum right across the street from where the museum is actually going to be built and that's going to be up for three years until the museum is going to be up in in uh, 2023 but yeah it's so innovative stuff man and and all kind of things that and and since we've opened just the revolution of hip-hop which is a small taste Tickets have been selling out like awesome. crazy. Awesome. Okay. okay. Um, when Cool Herc had his party, 
1973, if I'm, if I'm correct, yeah. I think it was August 11, 1973. August 11, yeah, 1973. Uh, I've been there. Uh, I, I had to go there because to right. me, that's like, if you will, the Garden of Eden. Oh, yeah. Of yeah where everything flowed from there. Yep. Uh, so I, I know I had to make my pilgrimage, if you will. And um, it's the apartment still there. I mean, it's the yeah. set is still there. Um, now, here, here's my other thing. Um, when can we, I have two questions. When can we expect possibly, if you can give us a, you know, a rough estimate, a uh, grand opening, and uh, um, do they have the location of, mm -hmm. okay. So the groundbreaking is going to be this year, I believe in March. Okay. So it'll be cutting the ribbon. They've already started leveling the ground and all that, but yeah, they have it. They they have the location. Uh, it's a it's a spot called the Bronx River. It's a brand new um, sort of development, cultural, community, business hub. It's about a mile away from Yankee Stadium, so it's a really it's in a really prime spot. Um, but it'll be a cultural draw for a okay. lot of people when we're already partnered with other museums like the Smithsonian and the Getty awesome. and all those places and stuff like that. And they've been really helping us now, guiding us along. But we had to really make people believe that we were serious. And I think through the consistency, um, that's how people started to go, okay, these guys are serious. And, and it's for us, by us. It's not, you know, foofy people trying to tell us what to do. And one of the things we told Microsoft, Google, YouTube, all these other, you know, corporate folks is, look, we control this. And if you have a problem with that, you can kick rocks, period, okay. plain and simple. We don't need okay. your money. We don't need your prestige. We don't need you if, you know, you're going to try and control this narrative forth. And they like, yo, we understand. We get it. It's hip hop. We love it. We respect it. We right. respect what you guys have done over these years. We cool with that. Right. So that's that's where it's at. Okay. So, you know, I, I, exactly. I'm a museum guy and that's why I get excited. Yeah. OK, I, I love museums. Uh, my other question to you is this, and this is coming, I believe, from the fans that because uh, I believe I pretty much already know the answer, but just to ask for the people can get an idea since it is in New York, is it just going to have New York artist memorabilia or will it include also the West? Absolutely not. And if anybody knows me, trust me, knows my situation. Listen, if you put me in a room with a bear, then and it's just me and that bear, that bear's got problems. Because no, I'm an advocate for the West Coast. You know, I'm I'm California love all the way through and through. I'm West Coast, you know, born and raised. And and in fact, they respect that. They respect, you know, where I'm coming from in my perspective. So I'm making sure okay. that, you know, what. We, and if you see the plans for the museum, the first thing you see as soon as you walk up is one of these. Awesome. Would represent the West Coast just like that. So, you know, and, and I'm pointing to a this little uh, Lolo. Yeah. yeah, this little Lolo right here that he got. So that's the first thing you see because they know and they understand the influence and the contribution of, okay. of the West. So, yeah, absolutely. man. they're actually going to have we've been talking about doing a whole uh, Ruthless Records Hall uh, in there. So, yeah, we, we good. Amazing. We, good. we covered. You know, since you brought up Ruthless Records, I've always said this. And, and I want to stand behind it, even though my name, my name may never, ever be mentioned. I don't care. I hope that one day Steve's cassettes that featured Dre, yeah. Easy, Cube would one day be included in that museum. You don't have to hope. It's, that's a done deal. Awesome. Yeah, that's a done deal. Uh, amazing. Amazing. We just have to get a hold of Susan and get some real copies. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm, I'm advocating for that. And anybody that wants to, to, to know more information about it, they can go to UHHM.org or they can contact me at any of my social media. You know, I guess we'll give those out, you know, at the end. But um, 
but yeah, just notice that the West Coast is is well protected and we got a team of people that are solid, solid from the West. You know, class one is, is on our team, Greg Mack. Um, we have um, um, Silky D. Um, yeah, man. So we got some really, really solid people that awesome. are down for the West, man, that, awesome. that's doing this thing. Now, uh, let's get to your book. Yes. I know it's out already. Yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about it and then uh, where can people buy it? So DJ Clientel, the autobiography, essays and writings of a modern day renaissance, man. Um, you can buy it at Amazon.com or at my website, CLI-N-TEL.com. Either way, you can go pick it up from there. It's really a book where I wanted to set the historical record straight because, you know, there are a lot of stories out there and a lot of people misrepresent sort of the narrative of, of where I come from, but also just West Coast in general and some of the hip hop and some of the stories I shared here today. But I wanted to make sure that the stories didn't get marginalized because there are people who played a significant role in this culture that don't get the respect or the recognition that they deserve like the Tony G's and people like that. So I just wanted to make sure that it was on record. You know, some of these stories that are out there that people have kind of been dancing around and sort of tiptoeing around, but I just, you know, solidly, explicitly put them in there so people could go, yo, on this page, this is what clientele said. But that's really what I wanted to do with it. Okay. And, and I also wanted to just kind of let people know that you don't have to be a one trick pony, you know, and, and I'm trying to inspire people to explore many different areas because i believe that all of us have gifts there's something that we can contribute to this world whether it's creative whether it's analytical whether it's whatever it is some people are nurturing and caring some people are thinkers and some people are doers some people have athletic ability we all have gifts and it's important to try and find those and enhance and be the best you and part of being a renaissance man or woman is is really working to look at you know, your, your life in a 360 perspective and look at all the things that you can do and try to be the best you. So that's, you know, that's, that's where it's at, man. Awesome. Awesome. Well, uh, I encourage everybody that subscribe or even some of those that haven't subscribed yet to pick up this book, you know, go to Amazon or go to his website and pick it up. Uh, I'm the type of person that I like to read. I really like to read, especially I like to say in my old age, I'm, I'm a reader. <laughs> and, and it's an easy read too. It's almost like you're having a conversation with me, you know, awesome. cause you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, trying to you know let let it out there you know and and let people have it and, and there are some things that you'll go whoa i didn't know that oh, oh really you know and and again it's it's really easy read man awesome awesome uh i have one more one more thing that i want to ask you okay sure. um me john elkins i directed it john yes. elkins filmed it and uh my boy daniel jones dg uh awesome. filmed it it took us about a year to film about a year to edit and uh, my question to you is, uh, do you believe it was important to be able to document uh, what Steve contributed to West Coast hip hop? You know, that's a no brainer, man. Um, absolutely, because Steve played such a significant role in West Coast hip hop. Who to thunk, right? right. Uh, you know, Asian dude who's like you said from Whittier had, had no real inclinations about hip hop, but was drawn to it and be and fell in love with the. I think 
it was more about him appreciating us too. Cause Steve was a friend of mine yeah. and Steve was always supportive of everything we did. And we needed people like him to believe in us because when other people weren't believing in us, it was the Steve Yano's and the Violet Browns and folks, Jerry Heller's even that could get into places that we couldn't get into, or they were accepted in areas that we weren't. And they were advocating for us to go, Hey, these young kids over here got something. You got to listen to them. You have to pay attention. And Steve was that person. And he gave us that shot and he gave us a chance from that other side. He was a businessman, but he was also an advocate for this hip hop and for us. And yeah, we owe a lot of uh, debt of gratitude to, to Steve. So absolutely, man, uh, awesome. it's important to, awesome. to tell his story for awesome. sure. Uh, once again, you can get it unlimited streaming at uh, documixery.com, the Rhodium mixtape documixery based on a swamp meat Japanese vendor from the city of Whittier. Uh, one last thing, if there's any shout outs, anything you want to say, uh, where they can reach you at. I think we got your Instagram up on the screen. Cool. But if there's anything that you want to share, say, give a shout out, pronounce your time. You know what? I always say this, man. You know, you know shout out to, you know, Dr. Dre and, and Ice Cube and DJ Yella and Grandmaster Lonzo, you know, Shakespeare and, and the whole, you know, crew from Wrecking Crew because Wrecking Crew was, wasn't just the four guys that you see on the album covers. The Wrecking Crew was a team of folks that were behind us, the 30, Plus, you know, uh, people who helped carry equipment, who worked at the club, who did security, you know, who uh, did all kinds of different things that, you know, that don't go down in the record books, you know, for us. So shout out to everybody and, and, and all the folks that came up with us and supported us over the years. And if you go through our family tree, you know, it runs all the way from Dre to to. Eminem and, and Kendrick Lamar and DJ Quick, all those cats, you, all these cats that are that fall under that, you know, that umbrella. And we just try to make sure that we represent and we here to make sure that, you know, um, the, the that people see the love that we have for this art form that really gave us an identity and gave us a purpose. So, yeah, you know, shout out to those guys, man. Awesome. 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 That's great. Okay. Well, let me go ahead and give a shout out uh, once again. First, first and foremost, let me go ahead and thank uh, uh, clientele for coming here. Um, to me, he's a legend. Uh, I'm thank I'm thankful to have him here for me to have an opportunity to. I mean, let me say this. Uh, I was a young teenager watching UMC. Years later, I'm 51 years old and I'm interviewing you. To me, this is the dream come true, uh -huh. brother. So. Once again, let me go ahead and thank John motherfucking Elkins uh, uh, yeah, yeah. for making all this possible. Uh, my boy Daniel, Daniel Jones, uh, DG, you can reach him at DG Media Clips. Thank my son, Brian B. Scanless, for helping me promote this. And everybody else out there who I forgot to mention, I'll get you guys Sunday. But uh, once again, the Rodeo Mixtape documentary, you will not be disappointed. Tomorrow, these go, these go out to those who uh, purchased it uh, on the uh, Super Chat. Uh, we are we are on all platforms now. Uh, of course, YouTube, but on all platforms you can find us. As a matter of fact, if you find one that we're not on, please email us and let us know. If you have any suggestions, comments, complaints, music, videos at rhodiumradio at gmail.com. That's where you send it all. I know a lot of you guys send a lot of requests. Get this guy, get this guy, get this guy. Believe me, it's all in the works. But also keep in mind, some of us have told us no. We're, they're not interested in the interview. That's fine. I move on to the next person. So once again, Rodan Radio will be back Sunday uh, with another special guest. You'll see that on my Facebook and you'll see that on uh, um, on my um, 
Instagram, and on YouTube as well. And I'll give you another hint of who it's going to be. This man wrote another book, and he talks about gangster rap. So once again, stay tuned. See you guys Sunday. God bless. Have a blessed night.